Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, my name is Pete, and I am the director of Chi Alpha. If you're new here, we are weird. Yeah, it's It's endearing though, right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks guys. Thanks for, I almost didn't feel at home for a second, but. um, And I have the joy of bringing God's word to us tonight. I will say, I've had great anticipation over this message. I feel like this message is one of the most countercultural messages that I can bring. And I've been asking the Lord to work it in my own life and to work it in your life. So be ready. Several years ago, I read a fascinating story about a man by the name of Jason Paget. I have his picture up here when he was just a young man there rocking the mullet, making. Jecker, feel a little jealous? <laughs> okay. Josh Ecker used to have a mullet like that. Anyways, okay. <clears throat> he was in Tacoma, Washington. Before September 13th, 2002, Jason Paget lived a fairly normal life. But on that faithful evening, he had been out to a karaoke bar for the evening. And on his way home, he was jumped and mugged by two guys. He went to the hospital because of the concussion that he received from, the, from being jumped and mugged. But he noticed something after returning home that not only did he have pain from the injuries, but he was seeing the world differently. In fact, objects that once appeared very smooth now looked very jagged and pixelated. And as Paget would look at the world, he saw everything as a geometric shape. Circular objects now had sharp corners to them. He would see a, a raindrop hit a puddle and he would watch the shape geometrically change as it hit the water. And people begin to ask him, could you draw what you're seeing? And okay, that's him now, but here's his drawings of what he would see. You may wonder, that is pie in pie as he saw it. <laughs> he, this is a hand as he saw it, he saw everything in geometric shape. So they did an MRI on him and his parietal lobe, the part of his brain that cannot normally be accessed by the conscious mind, lit up when they shared with him mathematical formulas. And when his, that part of his brain would light up as mathematical formulas were shared, he would see the fractal images Literally, his brain was rewired by this mugging and overnight, he became a savant of geometry. And he sees the world totally differently because of that faithful day. Interesting story, huh? 
Well, tonight we're going to discover that as we follow Jesus, we are brought into a new kingdom. And in that new kingdom, Jesus reshapes us to see the world completely differently. He gives us new vision. And our passage tonight, we're going to see actually passages. We're going to look at two passages. We are going to see one of the most radical examples, one of the most stark contrasts of how we see the world differently than the rest of the people who do not live in his kingdom. So if you will, turn in your Bible with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. I want to, okay, so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9 and 10 tonight. And what we're going to be entering into, well, what we were in last week as well, but continuing, is the central part of the gospel of Mark. This is the central piece of of Mark's gospel. In other words, it all, the, the, the different sides of the beginning of his ministry and ending of his ministry come to a, a place in the middle where we get the heart of what it means to be in his kingdom. And so there's a bit of a structure in this section. Go ahead and put up the structure. I want to explain to you uh, this area of the gospel of Mark because I think it'll help you understand what's happening here. Mark starts this section by a blind man being healed by two touches. Jesus touches him and he says... People look like trees now. I can see, but I don't see clearly. Jesus touches him again and the guy can see clearly. Okay, so it starts with the healing of a blind person. Then Jesus predicts his death, his suffering, his death, and then ultimately his resurrection for the first time. And Peter responds in a very unique way. He rebukes Jesus and says, Jesus, you can't be talking like that. That's not good for the, for the rep. I mean, we're gonna go take Jerusalem. You're gonna become king. Like, that's not how you build the kingdom. He's like giving Jesus a lesson on how to be a king, right? And Jesus says, behind me, Satan. That's something you never want Jesus to say to you. And he said to, Jesus, or to, to Peter, he says, because he says this, you have in, in your mind not the things of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, my kingdom is much different. Okay, then we come to chapter 9, verse 30 through 37. We're going to look at that today. And it says, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection again, and the disciples totally miss the nature of what Jesus is trying to share with them. And then for a third time, we're going to look at this as well. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And the disciples, again, totally miss the path of their discipleship of what the nature of God's kingdom is and what it means to live in, the, in, in his kingdom. Okay. And then right after that, you see it ends in verse 45, verse 46. What do we get? We get another healing of another blind man. So you have these three predictions where the disciples are totally missing it bookended by a healing of a blind man and a healing of a blind man. And what Mark is doing is saying, what you're going to see is that the disciples need to be healed of their blindness of what the true nature of God's kingdom really is. They're missing it. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. And I hope that our eyes, blind as they may be by the world, would be opened to the true nature of God's kingdom. And as a result, we would be kingdom savants, (laughs) if you will, that our lives would be changed as well. 
So that's where we're going tonight. My message will be a little shorter than normal, but before I hop to the text, let me share a, an essay with you, an overview of an essay that came to my mind as I was preparing this. And two years ago, I shared this, and so some of you may remember it. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called The Inner Ring, and it is found in my favorite C.S. Lewis book called The Weight of Glory. This one essay is worth the whole book, okay? In this essay, he describes how there, that the inner ring becomes, this pursuit of the inner ring, which we're going to talk about in just a second, becomes one of the chief motivators of the, what he would call the mainspring of human action. The desire to be in the inner ring. What is the inner ring, you ask? Well, C.S. Lewis would say the inner ring is hard to define. It's often invisible. It's elusive to define. Some people are clearly in the inner ring and some people are clearly out of the inner ring. Some people think they're in the inner ring, but they've just been pushed out of the inner ring to the amusement of those who are really in the inner ring, he says. And so you say, okay, well, help me out. What is the inner ring? Well, once you enter the inner ring, you'll discover that there's another ring that's even more inner, inner not enter, once you enter the inner ring, more inner. In fact, he'll say this, that once you enter the inner ring and you kind of feel like, okay, now I'm in, you'll realize that there, you have just pierced the skin of the onion, if you will, that there are more rings, yet more inner for you to enter into. Why would one want to enter into the inner ring? Well, because there's tangible benefits. That would be in the inner ring. If you can penetrate into the inner ring, there'd be a sense of power or prestige or money or privilege that would surely come along with being in the inner ring. Some people so want to be in the inner ring, they will leave friendships that would have been lifelong, life-giving friendships, but they will leave them to pursue other friendships that, of people who, who are deemed more important and will help them enter into that inner ring. And of course, once you are in the inner ring, you shake off, or, and you have shaken off your friends um, that would, yeah, okay, so once you've entered in, you've, you've done the whole friendship thing, you've kind of used people, you've networked your way in, once you're in, you make it hard for others to enter in. See, C.S. Lewis says the inner ring exists for exclusion, Exclusion is not an accident. Exclusion is the essence because the inner ring wouldn't mean anything if more people weren't on the outside of the inner ring than on the inside of it. Okay, so as I share about this, you, you can imagine it because it's not too different than the world you live in. For some of you, coming to UVA was an inner ring. You got in to UVA, and that was an inner ring over some of those other people that you went to high school with, perhaps. And then you come to UVA just to realize that that was just the beginning. You move into your dorm, and you realize, oh, wow, there's a whole nother ring, yet more inner. 
And somehow, can I pierce the skin of the next onion to be on the inside of this circle? And then you go into your classes and you try to see if you can get into the inner ring of that or a department, because then you have to apply into the comm school. Can you pierce that inner ring or into Batten or whatever it may be? Can you pierce it? And then you try to get into a club. And, and by the way, it is well known that at UVA there are hundreds of clubs and yet there are a few that a disproportional number of people want to be in because it's an inner ring that once you are in it has some benefits And then, of course, once you get into the club, you realize that's just one ring and there's more rings yet because then will you lead the club? Or, or if you're in the comm school, then you have to compete for the internship. And once you get the internship, then will you get the job? And once you get the job, will you get the promotion? Once you get the promotion, will you become the boss? And once you become the boss, will you become the bosses of the boss? And there's always another inner ring waiting for you. Are you guys following me? The inner ring is not foreign to us, whether we are at UVA, PVCC, or long since graduated. It is our world. And it's not foreign to the disciples either. And what we're going to look at is how the disciples face the inner ring mentality head on. We're gonna, I'm going to start reading in verse 30. And if you have your Bibles, please open it there. I am going to have the verses up there, but I really want you to follow along in your Bible if you, if you at all have your Bible with you. And here's, this is, okay, so before I start reading, this is high political drama. Let me set the stage for you. Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus is, okay, so the disciples are really excited because they're on their way to Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the seat of power for the Roman Empire's rule over that area. And so it's a political, uh, it'd be like us going to Washington, D.C., okay? And then it's also the spiritual hub, the place where the, um, where, where the, the spiritual uh, leaders would be for that day. And so the disciples are like, we're going to, to Jerusalem and Jesus, our king, maybe this is the time that he's going to overthrow the Roman empire. He's going to clean house of the corrupt religious leaders and he's going to purify Judaism. And by the way, when are they, go are they going? They're going right as Passover is coming. What did they celebrate at Passover? They celebrated God liberating them from underneath the boot of Pharaoh and they're like, come on, let's do it again. And so you can anticipate, this is like high drama as they march towards Jerusalem. In verse 30, here's what we read. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. Okay, so Jesus puts it out there and it's going whew, right over their head. Because they have their vision of what, what, what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. And it didn't fit their paradigm. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, uh, 
what were you arguing about on the road? Okay, if you remember last week, they were arguing with the uh, teachers of the law and about theology, but they had no power to cast out demons. Now they're arguing with each other and Jesus knows they're arguing, but he was way, he's like, we're gonna talk about this when we get to Capernaum. So he says, what were you arguing about on the road? He knows what they're arguing about because it says this, but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Okay, Jesus has just talked about how he's gonna be denied, how he's going to be crucified and rise again and, and be raised to life, resurrected, So he's talking about his suffering and they are arguing about who's the greatest. Can you see the disconnect of the contrast between Jesus and his disciples? Do you hear the inner ring mentality? Who's the greatest? And so sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus is saying, as you get this contrast, he's saying, your vision of what, my, what it means to follow me is being shaped by the world. It's being, your, your thoughts and your, the vision for your life is so worldly, it's being shaped by the things of the world. My kingdom is far different than that. Which brings to question this. What's forming your thoughts and your vision? Really? Like what really is forming your thoughts and your vision? And then Jesus, after coming against, against the inner ring mentality, he took a child that, he'd play, that had been placed among them, right, whom he had placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me doesn't just welcome me, but the one who sent me. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Okay, so that's the second time that Jesus predicts his betrayal. Now we're going to go to the third time. Hop over to chapter 10, verse 32. It says this. They were on their way, so now they're getting close to Jerusalem. They're on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he said to the 12, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. And this time he tells them in even more detail. He's trying to make it as clear as possible, make it so unambiguous that he, that he wants them to know what's going to happen. We are going to go up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. And then they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And then three days later, he'll rise. Can I make it any clearer to you disciples? I mean, he's like, do you need any more detail? Yes, they will spit on me. They will flog me. They will kill me. And then, I be, then I'll rise again. To which his disciples respond, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. 
They're like, can you give us a blank check maybe? And Jesus is too smart for that. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, oh, just one thing. Um, you know, uh, let one of us sit on your right hand and the other on your left hand in your glory. Okay, here, they were right to know that Jesus' kingdom is going to be a kingdom of glory. But what they have not yet understood, even though he spelled it out as ex expressly uh, clear as he possibly could, is that the glory will come after suffering and that in the kingdom of God, the road to glory is marked by the cross. And so Jesus replies, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Of course, they're thinking a drink from a kingly cup. Yeah, I can do that. Be baptized with privilege and power? Oh yeah, bring it on, baby. You know, that's like, yeah, I can, I can take that baptism. They're not getting it. And here's what Jesus, so they answer, we can. Yep, we sure can. Which by the way, let me just stop here for a second. This is one of those moments that Mark knew that most people who'd be reading this knew the end of the story as they're reading it, okay? Like, um, this was written to, to Roman believers, okay? It begs the question, will we be self-reflective? And will we ask ourselves the question, what mindset am I living from? Am I really blind to the nature of Jesus's kingdom? Because we can be so befuddled by the response of the disciples and yet see it in ourselves. It's almost as you read that the disciples seem so dense, it's like, do you know anyone like that? You know what I'm saying? It, it, it causes us to to personalize the question like, is that a lot like me? And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left, it's not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. And then he says this, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. You can imagine. You asked him, what? You know why they're indignant? Because they wanted those seats. You'd be, you wouldn't be surprised that the Greco-Roman honor code would be whoever sits on the right and left. It meant some social status. It meant some privilege. It meant some inner ring, right? That's no surprise to us. And then verse 42, Jesus called them together. And he's like, guys, you... Okay, so there's this, you have Jesus over here who's embracing the way of the cross. You have the disciples over here who are looking for status, who are looking for um, uh, special honor, who are um, thinking about all the glory, and there's this huge gap between them. And Jesus is trying to close the gap so they can understand what his kingdom is really about, what his kingdom is really like. And he says this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. And again, that's the way of the world. It's always about being on top and being over people. And Jesus says, not so with my kingdom, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great, by the way, he doesn't condemn them for wanting to be great. He doesn't condemn them for wanting to make a difference with their life and do something meaningful with their life. He doesn't condemn that. In fact, he plays with it a little bit and he, and he turns it on its head. He says, hey, you wanna be great? That's a great thing. Let me teach you how to truly be great great in my kingdom. And he says this, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. In other words, whoever wants to be great will put the interest of others ahead of their own interest, will actually reject the inner ring mentality and work exactly the opposite direction, that whoever wants to be great, it won't be about trying to climb the ladder into the highest inner ring possible. It'll actually be about putting others ahead of yourself and making yourself a servant, not just to some where it will benefit you, but to all, those who have nothing to offer you. And then Jesus gives us his mission statement. Some scholars would say this is the most important verse in all of the gospel of Mark. I memorized this when I was in college. I commend it to you to memorize it while you're in college. For even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. It's an interesting closing verse of this passage as Jesus brings it to a head. For even the son of man did not come to be served. Okay, the son of man is a term from Daniel 7, 14. That here, here are the things that are described in Daniel 7, 14. That the Son of Man will come with authority, will come with glory, will come with sovereign power. That the Son of Man will be worshipped by the nations. That the Son of Man will have dominion that will last forever. So the Son of Man figure of Daniel 7, 14 is one of great uh, great glory. And, he, and Jesus takes that title onto himself and he says, for the son of man did not come to be served. Okay, so that son of man, that glorious son of man that comes in riding on the, he is the one who comes not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. What I wanna do is just take a few minutes and compare the kingdom of Adam and the kingdom of God. And then I'm going to ask a simple question and we're going to call it, okay? Here's, here's a chart. Difference between the kingdom of Adam and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Adam is a very me-focused kingdom bent in, on, bent in on itself, full of selfishness. This is the one that's trying to get into the inner ring, right? Trying to see what benefits and what, what, what power and what prestige can happen if I can just get to where I want to go. And yet the kingdom of God is one that's focused on God and focused on others that's about loving and serving and uh, looking at the interests of others. Next, the kingdom of Adam is defined by pride and posturing. 
C.S. Lewis says this, a proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that is above you. So a proud person's always looking down and so they miss God. They can't know God because they're always looking down on everyone. They're looking down on things of how it's inferior and, how it, and, and full of cynicism and how they're better than other people. And yet the kingdom of God is about humility where you're always looking up at God and at, and at others in a way where you can see God at work and live in his kingdom. The kingdom of Adam, when, when people of Adam's kingdom walk in the room, they say, here I am. The kingdom of God, when somebody walks into the room, says, oh, there you are. Luke, there you are, man. It's so great to see. Does that make sense? They're the center of attention, not me being the center of attention. The kingdom of Adam is about wanting to be served, about having, having this power be used to our own advantage. But the kingdom of God is about, okay, I've been given this power. How can I use it to serve? How can I leverage it for the good of others? The kingdom of Adam competes with others. In fact, um, C.S. Lewis also says in Mere Christianity in his chapter on pride that pride is inherently competitive. It's inherently competitive. And so as long as you're trying to get into that inner ring, it's all, everybody is competition. But then the kingdom of God is not about competing with others, it's about loving others. And it's hard to love somebody you're competing with. And then I just want to spend a moment on the two final things. That the kingdom of Adam acts like there are little people and big people. The kingdom of God treats everyone like they're big people. Did you remember when Jesus pulled the child in and says, if you welcome them, you welcome me and not just me, but the one who sent me? Why did he pull a child in? Because the child was so innocent? Not in this situation. The reason why is because the child in that world had no social status. And so to welcome a child in like that, they had nothing to offer you. Your social status would not have been increased at all by welcoming them into your life. Now, if you welcome somebody of high standing over to your house for dinner, then you'd be known as the guy or the gal who had the person of high standing into your house for dinner. And so then you would have high standing brought onto you. Are you following me? And so Jesus is like, when you welcome those who the world sees as little people, they're not little people. In fact, when you welcome them in, they're big people and I come with them and my father comes with them too. And here's the point, that the people in the kingdom of God treat everyone like they're a big person. There are no little people. In the past couple of weeks, I've heard some beautiful stories about our community in the past couple weeks, making a big deal out of big people. And I'm not gonna share any of those stories, but I, I mean, when I heard, I went, yeah, that's the kingdom of God right there, making a big deal of big people because there aren't any little people. One of the ways that Jesus tells us that we make a big deal of people and live in his kingdom is by hospitality about welcoming people who have nothing to offer you, but welcoming them into your life. It's not brain surgery. It's just about treating people 
like they're big people. And there's a lot of big people around you that other people think are little people. And if you treat them like they are as big people, Jesus says, I'll be there. And they're right around you. And then finally, people in the kingdom of Adam aim to get more out of life than they give, than they put into it. But J. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, says this, that we must aim to put more into life than we take out. In other words, we're not always looking at what's in it for us. We're not always looking at, well, will there be reciprocity? But we're just looking to put more into life than we take out because that's what it looks like to be a person who doesn't come to be served, but comes to serve. You may not get anything in in, in return. There may be nothing that person has to offer you. There may be no reciprocity, but we must be people of the kingdom who are so secure in God's kingdom, so secure in his love that we will willingly take the lowest rung on the ladder of the social hierarchy, of the social pecking order to serve and to look like our Savior. Okay. That's not an exhaustive list, but I think we get the point. I want to ask the worship team to come forward. How do we live this out? (laughs) Let me get really practical. You ready for really practical? Here's how we live it out. We ask for the heart-shaping work of the Holy Spirit to form the heart of Jesus in us. Because here's the thing. Our hearts don't naturally do this. And so we need to ask for the heart-shaping work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the humble one and we want him to form the humble, the spirit to form the, the heart of the humble one in us. Jesus is the one who has the servant heart and we want the spirit to form that servant heart within us. And so we need the spirit to do his work to form Christ in our hearts. Jesus is not just our savior, Jesus is our model Yes, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Yes, he came to serve, not to be served, and praise God he did, right? Our lives are forever changed. Yes, he is our savior. He is also our model. You know in that story of blind Bartimaeus that ends this kind of sandwich, if you will? Here's what you find. Jesus asks Bartimaeus the exact same question he asked the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? And you know what Bartimaeus' answer was? I want to see. And you know why that's so important that the exact same question was, was asked? Because he gives the answer that the disciples should have given. What do you want me to do for you? The disciples should have said, we're not getting it. Will you help us see? Instead, they ask for the position of power and show their blindness. What would happen if all of us
started to truly see the nature of our path of discipleship and the nature of God's kingdom and seeing that it's one of servanthood. It's not one about the inner ring that the Christian fellowship isn't just another inner ring that somehow you can keep piercing the layers of. It's about one of service. What if we all could be kingdom of God savants and just get it and just see it as Jesus saw it and see the angles as Jesus saw them? Okay, here's what we're going to do. I want to have you stand. I want you, as we close, to close your eyes. And I want you to picture Jesus coming up to you and asking you this very simple question. What do you want me to do for you? And I would encourage you to ask him to give you eyes to see the way of Jesus and the nature of his kingdom and then a heart to follow him in it. What if, tonight, what if that was our, our question when he says, or our response when we ask this question, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, we want to see we want to see, not as the world sees. We want, to, we want to have our vision formed by your kingdom, by your way, by your cross. By your example. And we want a heart that is so secure in your kingdom that we can live it out. We want a heart that is not focused on me but focused on you and others we want a a heart that doesn't use people but blesses people a heart that doesn't see big people and little people but a heart that just sees big people a heart that is more about what we can give in life than what we can take out of life we want a heart that looks like yours King Jesus tonight Jesus asks what do you want me to do for you and we say Jesus as a community we want to see we don't want to walk around blind we want to know true greatness greatness as defined by you and we want to live it out in Jesus name let's close with this yes Lord We ask that you would make us more like Jesus. Lord, I pray that we'd be a community where we're not too good for anybody. Because anybody we meet is a big deal. And we'd treat them like they're a big deal. And we'd practice hospitality with them like they're a big deal. When we welcome them in, we welcome them in like they're a big deal. 
that we'd be a community who doesn't seek to get more out of life than we put into it, but we'd seek to put more into it than we get out. That we would leave a blessing, awake a blessing behind us as we serve people. And Lord, that you would make us people who aren't enamored by the inner ring, but are enamored by the kingdom of Jesus and living like Jesus and loving Jesus and loving people like Jesus loved people. And so Lord, help us as a community, wherever you've placed us in our dorms and our programs and wherever we're at, that we would be people of your kingdom with our eyes open to see as you see and hearts to follow you in it as our great savior and our model. Shape our hearts by your spirit for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. And for the benediction tonight, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's have a great week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com. 